Welcome to Tech Ed Tech, a podcast about educational technology and project-based learning in the classroom. I'm Mike. And I'm Dan, and we are here to talk this week about EdTech failures. So let's get to it. Welcome to episode three. This week, I came across this interesting article that I actually felt the need to immediately send you because I thought it was so well done, a lot of interesting viewpoints that you don't see a lot of, and I think it's a great read for everybody who's into either educational technology or even technology education. Uh, It was titled, The 100 Worst Ed Tech Debacles of the Decade. It was written by Audrey Waters and posted on December 21st of 2019. And it was hosted on hackeducation.com. We'll make sure we leave a link to that in the show notes. It was a fantastic article of 100 ed tech failures or debacles from the last 10 years and things that people were so high on at different points. So what I thought it would be kind of fun to do was each of us take our top five that we want to discuss and go through because there were some on there that I completely agreed with. And there were some of them on there that I had a slightly different take than uh, Audrey did. So I thought it'd be kind of fun to go through and kind of reminisce a little bit and talk about some of the ones we predicted and some of the ones we disagree with. Yeah, it'll be fun. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of memories being brought up by the uh, failures of the last decade, stuff that you hear about and you're like, oh yeah, I remember that was a big deal. So, well, let's get into it. What's your, well, I guess we won't do this in any particular order, but... Hey. You think in 10 years from now, you're going to be like, hey, remember when we thought it would be a good idea to make a podcast? I mean, yes. <laughs> and we'll leave it at that. I think we should start work, start at 100 and we'll work our way down the list. Okay. So what what's your highest number? My highest number is 93. Oh, that beats me. All right. What do you got? Okay. So coming in at number 93, one that I actually sort of agree and disagree with was 3d printing okay so i picked this one because i agree that it was a complete bust and it was blown up to be much bigger than it was i remember that push for like everyone's gonna have 3d printers and not only just in schools but everyone's gonna have one in their home and it's gonna change things you're never gonna have to buy things you're just gonna download it from the internet and print it out there was an immediate problem that I remember you and I both catching right away. And that's the skill set you need in order to successfully 3D print, which is being able to 3D model. Most people don't know how to do that. And 3D modeling software isn't the most accessible kind of software where you could just learn it in a day or even like a week. Oh yeah. And don't get me wrong, I don't think this was a complete failure because we do 3D printing in the classroom and it comes out great. Although we have to spend weeks teaching kids to use CAD software for the 3D modeling. It's not a complete failure. I mean, there was just wild, wild predictions about how thorough it was going to be. And I think it still has flourished. And I I think that 3D printing has actually come a long way because of that. And there are a lot of accessible 3D printers out there for the home, but there's not a lot of push on the other side to teach people 3D modeling or make it more accessible. I can't even say that honestly because that's even gotten better because SketchUp's gotten better. Then you have uh, Tinkercad, which is now owned by Autodesk. You have 
lots, a lot more tutorials. There's a lot more accessibility. I think that has developed. We both called this one. I actually think 3D printers are pretty great in the right scenario. But those early days where 3D printers were going to create a revolution in the classroom, which I never 100% understood, and a revolution in manufacturing, which I feel like I was a little bit more open to that idea, but even that hasn't really come to pass. 3D printers are good in a tech ed classroom. They're less good anywhere else. I think a lot of the hype around 3D printers is also tied to the hype around that first really accessible 3D modeling software, which would be Google SketchUp. But it turns out that unless you just kind of want to create an amorphous 3D shape, you need actual skills, which are not easy to come by. It's not a black art. If somebody wanted to get good at 3D modeling and 3D print figurines, custom parts, it's all there. And the barrier to entry is not that high, but it's not a casual thing. Yeah, the early hype was that everybody would be 3D printing whatever they needed. You lost the back of your remote, just 3D print a new one. But to actually model a remote back that fit would take a pretty high level of skill. And this idea that there would be some sort of infinite part supply where you could just download anything, like you could download any song, never really came to fruition. So that's 3D printing. What's your next number? Next for me is number 85, something I'm really passionate about, which is the teacher-influencer hustle. Too many teachers are being forced to do crazy things like create podcasts or... What? No. I can't be serious. They feel they need to promote their personal brands and be out there on Instagram. Um, Okay. And a little bit more serious. I have gotten emails from administrators saying... Go to Donors Choose, make a campaign, promote it to the community. I think this idea that teachers have to be these like very public figures, and I think it's even a little bit uh, promoted in our evaluation model, it just rubs me the wrong way. I, there's nothing wrong with sharing your expertise and talking to other professionals about what you do and using social media to share it, but I think this sort of push where everything has to be public and you have to have this persona It's not the biggest deal in the world, but it's something, it's becoming pervasive. It's like everywhere in our lives. And professionally, I'm not sure it's necessary. And I don't feel that as much at the middle school level, but I know teachers at the high school level in our district and in others, and it is absolutely there. They are teachers. They are essentially like on call 24-7. That is encouraged and borderline mandated to where they have to be accessible to after hours to take questions, to post things on their social media and promote themselves. You know, so not only is it a problem because, you know, you're kind of working a 24 hour day at that point where like, you know, we have lives outside of this, but you're also forced to do all this extra stuff where we don't always have the time to do that. Encouraging everybody to do that kind of creates a lot of issues yeah it's so difficult and challenging with there's so many great tools out there things like google classroom microsoft teams canvas things like that that schools are embracing that will make it a lot easier to manage classrooms manage classwork have the students connect together digitally but at the same time it then creates this issue where 
they have the ability to constantly be connected. I've even heard stories of school districts having to turn off access at like 11 p.m. every night because students were, you know, one, two, three o'clock in the morning studying, turning in assignments at the last minute, you know, 11.59 p.m. Yeah, it's not so much the problem with just sharing and, you know, resources and your knowledge and having open communication through social media with other professionals. It's the encouragement of, like you say, the 24-hour teacher brand where you're going to be connected and online and sort of in tap with your students and your you know, community 24-7. And I'll have to admit, as teachers, we don't have it that bad. Other professions have it way, way worse. But I see it coming for us, and I just kind of want to step back from that and be a teacher again. What's next on the list? I actually had it at number 89, which was clickers. Ah, clickers. This is something I've actually just started dabbling in a little bit. They try to digitalize some re- like test review or things like that. But even the clickers where you could actually buy like a classroom set of like dedicated like buzzers a la like Jeopardy. Mm-hmm. I've seen those in classrooms since I started teaching 12 years ago. They were well established and people thought it was the greatest thing. They would write grants to get them in their classrooms. I saw so little benefit to how much they cost because while you are getting feedback from the students, you could get the same feedback from hand raising exit cards okay while it's not as nice and tidy and digitally managed the cost of those things was absolutely absurd compared to what you actually got back yeah yeah well this is what i've never understood even with the sort of free-ish or premium model ones online is that they're nice I, i i think there's a place for them in the classroom but it's such a tiny place in the classroom quiz review maybe once every you know whenever there's a quiz i don't know how often that comes up maybe once a week and the kids like it the kids enjoy it it's a little bit of a break but it the benefits are tiny it it, it's sort of just a fun way of doing something teachers have done forever the excitement and hoopla over these things is blown way out of proportion i agree completely seeing how little these actually add to the classroom And while they do have their role, it reminds me, I want to attribute this to Alton Brown, the chef. There's a line that goes something like, a kitchen gadget with only one use is just taking up space. Yeah, that's good. Uh, It's the same kind of thing where, you know, when you have like the melon baller, that was always my approach to it. And I actually just, I, I was so turned off by it that it took me until this, I think the last three months to really even start looking at them again. Just to, cons- just to see what's out there. Right. What do you got next? All right. Coming at number 81. This is the only one where I felt like we definitely both picked the same thing, which is interactive whiteboards, but I got to it first. So it's yes, mine. We, yes, we, yes, we did. All right. Interactive whiteboards. So often called smart boards, interactive whiteboards allow you to click right on the whiteboard instead of having to use that cumbersome mouse. I used to have one in my class at the old school I taught at. It was fine. It worked. Every once in a blue moon, I'd bring a kid up and have them click something. And they liked it. They were elementary age. They couldn't reach very high. But if it was low enough, they could click it. Other than that, I saw very little benefit. I did try to record my lessons and my notes for my middle school age students. And I'm not sure a kid ever actually watched any of those lessons and that video I created. 
all the time I put into that, I would say the number of views was probably closest to zero. They seem to be expensive toys to me. Yeah, there's a few issues that I have with them. Number one being the software is usually the biggest limiting factor. I've found that because like SmartBoard has their own like technologies that work with it, and because that kind of limits you and forcing you to like make your smart presentations and your smart recordings in their software, which is also licensed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean our school full transparency has many many smart boards although not in our room not in either of our rooms but do they still use the smart board software i know there have been issues with that before i believe they do it's been a few years since i've used one i actually used to have one in one of my classrooms that i taught in but i believe they are still licensing that software and paying for it in my experience most of the time what i've seen is people not using the software to its fullest degree and essentially just using that as Microsoft PowerPoint. Formerly, and this is by no means a uh, scientific study, just around the school, the popularity of using the actual SmartBoard software has dramatically dropped. I feel like teachers used to have SmartBoard lessons, and I'm sure some of them still do, built in the SmartBoard notebook. Often now, that's basically used as a clicker. And, you know, occasionally to circle something or highlight something, which is all well and good. But as we discovered... A dry erase marker still works really well for that. I didn't crunch the numbers, but I think it's safe to assume that if you just had a regular whiteboard and you had a projector installed and you bought like a $30 presentation remote, you could do all the things that most, you could cover like 95% of use case for, for a smart board. And I think you'd be at a lot less of the cost. Oh, I, I agree. And it's especially frustrating when you ask for some printer paper and you get like 100 sheets, but there is a barely used $5,000 smart board in almost every classroom. It's things like this that make us teachers crazy. Yeah. All right. The next one I have is 52. Oh, wow. Going way down the list. I have at 52 virtual reality. Okay. This one wasn't as bad as 3D printing. It wasn't as widespread, but I still hear about it as as VR technology develops and starts to become less costly. It is so ridiculously expensive to have VR set up where you could have an entire class, even if it's a small class of like 10 to 15 kids, it would be so incredibly expensive because you not only need to pay for the headsets and all the VR hardware, and let's assume you got the content for free from someone. Let's say you found someone who's providing you free educational content like Google or whoever. You need a computer for each headset that is much better than the standard computer you're going to get distributed to you by your IT department at your school. You need space to run VR. So there's so much need for this. And once again, how much are you going to get back? How is this going to improve your classroom so significantly to justify that cost? Where that money could be spent on so many better things, like you just said. Paper? Pencils? Oh, man. Uh, yeah, I can't believe. If there's anyone out there making their living by selling VR to schools, good for you. I, I can't believe anyone would take this seriously. You know, I, I'm old enough to remember hearing about VR in the 90s. And I feel like it's only a moderately more successful ver- version and only for gaming, as far as I can see right now. Which is great. I mean, I hope people keep developing the technology. We're all in 
fans of technology here, but in the classroom, I, I don't see it at all. Yeah, so there's so many limiting factors to this that make this so inaccessible. Only one kid can use one headset at a time. You need so much to make it work. It's so expensive. There are so many better ways to use your resources. All right, what do you got next? All right, coming in at number 53 is the TED Talk. You are much harder on TED Talks than I am. I, I kind of like TED Talks. I will agree that there was a time where I used to think TED Talks are really cool, too. I think it was one of the first podcasts I've ever subscribed to was like a TED Talk podcast. Oh, see, I couldn't even do the TED, TED Radio Hour. I got a little burnt out on that pretty quick. Yeah, I mean, this was maybe a decade ago now that I, that I listened to that. But the more I hear TED Talks, and especially how they are applied to education, whenever an educational TED Talk is shown to me in a faculty meeting or some sort of professional development, it's just getting terrible. These ideas are glib and oversimplified, and at this point, mostly just, just marketing. I mean, if you ever hear somebody talk who's actually given a TED Talk, they are supposed to follow a very strict format of how the talk goes, and they are coached. And so every TED Talk to me now sounds like the same marketing pitch with a slightly different oversimplified idea. Yeah. Now, I also have like a built-in filter in my head to separate TEDx and an actual TED Talk. So like when I see like TEDx, I usually treat that as like the little brother of the TED Talk. And it's like, oh, that's cute that you want to be like your big brother. And not to say that every TEDx is terrible, but I usually learn to take those with a grain of salt. Okay. However, I think there's a lot of good TED Talks out there. One of my favorites, Roman Mars. You love vexillology? Vexillology? Vexiology. That too. Yeah. No, I thought Roman Mars did a great job with that. All right. My last one, coming in at number 48, the Hour of Code. Oh, interesting. I would like to hear your take. I don't think I hate the Hour of Code. I also do not hate the Hour of Code. And I agree, because Audrey's point, and I'll read her blurb here, Code.org has raised over $60 million in funding from the tech industry giants, and its lessons are often highly branded. You can now learn the basics of coding with Disney's Moana. There are serious problems with the industry's command that everyone should learn to code. That's a separate item on this list. But it's worth noting here that one hour, whether an hour of code or a genius hour, is hardly a sufficient commitment to change education or, for that matter, to change the industry. It seems that Audrey's issue is the fact that they say that everyone should do it, everyone should get involved, everyone should learn to code, that in an hour it'll transform you into some coder. Okay. I don't have an issue with everyone trying it for an hour. And I don't expect people to become an expert in an hour, obviously. I don't think there's, you can't become an expert in anything in an hour. Just getting the exposure out there and people having some idea of what goes into coding even if it's as silly as playing a game with like Moana or Disney characters, or there's the one where you can make the cats and stuff dance to music. That exposure, I think, is still important. You know what? I have no problem taking part in the Hour of Code. I know you do it as well in your classroom every, it's the first week of December. We always take time and we take a day out, even if it's the middle of a project. We say, hey, today we're gonna do something a little bit different. I want you to try this. Some kids groan because of the, you know, but you know, you find something that they like to do and you just get them doing it. And I think that exposure is valuable for 
kids, adults. I agree. So this is not an ed tech failure. This is here promoting the hour of code. Yeah, I think it's a good thing. Yeah. I, I agree. I mostly agree with you. I think the hour of code is perfect for what it is. I think every child should have exposure to coding. And yes, it's glossy and it's, and it's marketed and, you know, so, it sort of kind of pushes the Silicon Valley tech bro idea of the future. But I think it's still a good introduction to code for young children. I agree a little bit more, and this is a separate item on Audrey's list. I agree a little bit more that I'm not sure every kid really know, needs to know how to code. And I think every kid should have the opportunity to learn how to code, but I think some of these glossy learn to code promotions really oversimplify what coding is. I think kids kind of get this idea that coding is just dropping blocks everywhere, left and right, left and right. And then when they really actually have to learn how to code, it's too big of a cliff for them. They, they just go into it thinking this is too hard and then I feel like that might actually turn some students off in the end. But Hour of Code itself, the the very glossy, slick presentation, I think it's good. I think young students should be exposed to that and have it in their head that it's a uh, opportunity that they could take further in life or as they get older. All right, what do you got? Big finish. All right, big finish. I'm going to scroll down a little bit on my list, and I'm going to go Google for education. Uh-oh. This is Chromebooks and Google Apps in schools. I, when this first started coming into schools and Google Apps, which has been around for a long time now, I was all for it. I thought it was pretty great. It was easy to use. Kids could kind of jump right in. I'm starting to see a lot of the negative side effects for kids being in a Google environment. I kind of want to use this as an entry that kids just don't know how to use computers anymore. And I blame Google for education. Okay. This is interesting because I am nowhere near as against this as you are. I think it's actually been a positive thing for education. And what I think is happening, and you see this slowly transitioning, is kids don't know how to use computers, but I think the technology is changing to meet that. I think that's just how the way that technology is going. And this is your okay boomer moment. They can't go to a website. I've complained about the same things. Kids can't save a file, download a file and find it, rename it, move it. Right. I think that stuff, file management, is going by the wayside. I think that's changing because now you see Microsoft has the search bar built in. And even when you go to look up something like, oh, how do I change the setting in Windows? They tell you hit Windows S to open up search, and now type this in. They don't tell you, okay, go to start, go to settings. Kids don't know what the start menu is anymore. I think technology is changing, and that doesn't bother me as much. I've thought about this a little bit, and I agree with you that in a kid's or an adult's or anyone's everyday life, they don't need to know much about computers. They could use their devices, their phones, their Chromebooks, and... You don't have to know a single thing about file management, about going to a web page, about moving a file from one place to another, and that's fine. But then I thought back to when I was in school a long, long time ago, and none of that stuff they taught me about using a computer back then had anything to do with my life. No one had computers at home. They were teaching me computer skills because that was agreed that that was something people needed to know. And I still think 
that computer skills are something that students, we are educators. We don't have to go down to their level as, yes, they could use Instagram just fine without knowing what a file is. I think we're supposed to teach them these things. And this kind of push away from just general computer education, how a file structure works, what a website is versus an app versus anything else. This is becoming an issue where it's very slow to get my students to do anything on computers because I'm teaching both. I'm teaching the software I might be, the CAD software or programming software I might be trying to go over that day. But I also have to teach them basic computer skills like how to save something which I feel like they should be taught everywhere and maybe in like a computer class, a computer science class perhaps. I, I, I think you're making my argument for me. All of these things come back to there's still a file. Like pretending that files don't exist isn't helping the kids. Having a kid understand that a file might move between their local hard drive because they have no idea that such a thing exists. Google Drive, OneDrive, if they're moving, or Canvas, if they don't know what a file is and they don't understand what saving is, they're not gonna be able to do that. We've made the technology a lot easier, but unless you just get into a siloed, I'm only gonna use Apple products and iCloud for the rest of my life, or Google products and Google Drive for all times, you're still gonna have to know this stuff at some point. Or, I mean, I guess you don't have to, but it's gonna be a disservice, especially if you're talking about a technical education. Yeah. I could go along with that to a degree. All right, I think that's a good place to leave it. So I'd like to once again thank Audrey Waters for that article. I thought it was a great article, and while I didn't agree with everything, I thought it was such a pleasant read and very refreshing. So once again, make sure you check out her article titled The 100 Worst EdTech Debacles of the Decade, hosted on hackeducation.com. It's hackeducation.com. And we'll put her information, her Twitter, and a link to the article in our show notes. And that's all we have for this week. Thanks for listening. For more information about the show, including contact info and links to our social media, check out our website, teched.technology. And while you're there, stop by the forum to check out postings on projects that we do in the classroom and connect with other ed tech people and tech ed people. Today's show was created and produced by me, Mike Lasher, and Dan DeLuca. We'll see you in two weeks for our next episode. 